The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Now moving forward to chapter 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Skipping to verse 13. And we'll conclude with this reading. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from all off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, one of the things or types of literature that is all the rage these days are these uh, post-apocalyptic novels where some major worldwide cataclysm happens and a few people survive and the story tells us what happens. I was reading a book like that recently. It's called The Passage. It's by a guy named Justin Cronin, who's a Houston-based author. And this book is about a virus that spreads all over the earth. And uh, the government, the U.S. government, attempts to contain the virus. And I'm sure this surprises you. They fail. They don't do that well. And they call their attempt to contain the virus Project Noah. Project Noah. But the virus gets out and it wipes out most of humanity and only a handful of people survive. And the rest of the book is about their adventure and their experience in in really a, a brave new world. Those stories have a lot of uh, resonance with our culture right now for a variety of reasons, but I want to actually argue that those kinds of stories have had a lot of resonance for a long, long time, millennia, in fact. Did you know that almost every ancient human culture had their own apocalyptic story? And it actually happens to be based in history. Every human culture has a flood story, almost all of them. Some of them predate the Bible's story of the flood, and that actually makes some Christians uncomfortable. But I want to actually tell you that that shouldn't make you uncomfortable if you're a Christian and you believe in the authority of the Bible. If there really was a worldwide flood that wiped out a huge percentage of humanity, it makes complete sense that every culture on the planet is going to have in the archives of their narrative some story that tells the tale of the flood, Mesopotamia, Egypt, all of the ancient cultures had a flood story. And we read this morning the flood story of the ancient people of Israel, the Bible's flood story. All these chapters that we read portions of are devoted to Noah and to the great flood. And this is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Even if you're not a Christian, if you haven't ever read the Bible in your life, or if you haven't been around church in a long time, but you find yourself here this morning, My guess is you've heard the flood story in one way or another before. It was a real-life apocalyptic event. It was a world-altering, life-shattering, global phenomenon. And today, we're going to look at the story of the flood, and we're going to see the God who is behind it. So what does the flood teach us? What does it teach us about God, and what does it teach us about ourselves? One thing we've seen again and again in these early chapters in Genesis is that The book of Genesis really is a book of stories. And one of the things that I've been trying to convince you of is that stories have incredible formative power. Stories actually are what shape the meaning of our lives. Stories form us in much more profound ways than just bare abstract information. They form us and they shape our souls and our hearts and our minds. And the God who made everything, including us, knows this, which is why God tells us the true story of the world in Genesis. He tells us the story with the purpose of helping us place ourselves in the story and with the purpose of forming our hearts. And so as we continue in this big story of Genesis, what does the flood teach us? I want to summarize it for you like this. The flood is two things. It's God's judgment against evil, and it's God's salvation from evil. That's the main point. The flood is God's judgment against evil and God's salvation from evil. So let's just break that into two parts for our outline today. The flood is God's judgment, and the flood is man's salvation. So let's start with the idea that the flood is God's judgment. That's the first 
and the most obvious thing to understand about the flood. It is an act of God's judgment. Now, as I said, almost all of you have heard the story of the flood before, no matter your religious background. And I bet that you could walk into any bookstore in San Antonio this afternoon and go to the children's section and somewhere find a children's book about Noah and the animals and the ark because we have sentimentalized this story. When Marianne and I served at a prior church in Arizona and Nathaniel, our oldest, was born, one of the dear ladies in our church knitted us a quilt for Nate. And it had all these different Bible stories. And in the quilt... There is front and center a picture of Noah and the animals with big smiles on their faces as the rain began to pour down. And it even said, day of judgment. Yay! Congratulations on Nate's birth. And we've had, I'm sure, um, toys for the bathtub for our kids to play with to re-simulate the worldwide cataclysm of the flood. We've sentimentalized this story. Probably you as parents have told this story to your children or read about this story in Bible, children's Bible books, and really forgotten to some degree the main point. Here's the main idea. This is a terrifying story. Do you get that? Um, Everyone on the planet, except eight people, die in the flood. The flood is a tough story to take in, if we're honest, and if we read it on its own ground, because the flood is a display of the fierce judgment of God on the world. And listen, you might struggle with that idea. You might really struggle with a God who would act in this way. And I want to just say that if you struggle with this story, you're actually beginning to understand it. That's a good thing. Your struggle with this story is a sign that you're getting what's really happening here. This story should make you uncomfortable. This story should cause some struggle. So how are we to take this idea in? I want to walk you through three ways which this story frames for us the truth about who God is and what his judgment teaches. Because it's indisputable, this is about judgment, at least to some degree. And the first thing that we need to understand is that God judges the world in the flood because the world was evil. God judges the world in the flood because the world was evil. Look again at verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And then listen to how all qualifying this is. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is not a story about God arbitrarily wiping people out on a whim. No, the judgment of God is very clearly here, judgment against oppression and corruption and evil that just happen to be overrunning the world that God made and loves. The Old Testament scholar Victor Hamilton says this, God does not run his world amorally. God is moved to anger by man's deliberate violations of the code by which God wills his world to live. So the story tells us that God judges the world because God is actually a good king. And good kings must answer to human violence and oppression and the chaos that springs from those things. It's important for you to get that when you and I are outraged about some horrific thing that we read about or see on TV and the news, to understand that outrage exists, first of all, in the heart of God. Outrage exists, first of all, in the heart of God. All of us are outraged at horrible evils that we see. 
Doesn't it follow, if we're being honest, doesn't it follow that God, who is much holier and purer and more righteous than us, would also respond in that way? Uh, I was reading this week about a murder that took place in New York City on September 2nd, 1990. And this murder horrified the city and really the whole country as it made the news. The Watkins family was visiting Manhattan from Provo, Utah. It was a father and a mother with their two barely grown children. And they had come joyfully to the city to enjoy uh, the U.S. Open's tennis matches. And while the family was waiting on the subway platform for a train to Flushing Meadows, the family was assaulted by four young men. And the older of the two sons, around a 12-year-old, went to his mother's rescue as she was being savagely beaten. And the four men killed this boy right there and left. And the judge in this criminal trial, a man named Edwin Torres, sentenced all four of these attackers to life without parole, which at the time was the most severe punishment one could have in New York City. And he also, the judge, issued what I think is a striking statement. Uh, expressing grave alarm for a society in which he writes, quote, a band of marauders can surround, pounce upon, and kill a boy in front of his parents, and then stride up the block to Rosalind and dance until 4 a.m. as if they had stepped on an insect. For a mother to hold a dying child in her arms, murdered before her very eyes, is a visitation that the devil himself would hesitate to conjure up. That cannot go unpunished. That cannot go unpunished. Would we not agree with that? Righteousness demands that that sort of evil be punished. And that's the first thing we see about God's judgment in the flood. His righteousness righteousness demands that evil be punished. The flood is God's judgment and God judges the world because the world is full of evil. Secondly, We frame our understanding of God's judgment when we see that God is grieved in his judgment. Look at verse 6 of chapter 6. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, if you are offended or struck by the horrific nature of the flood, everyone except eight people perish, then you should see that the person most grieved and horrified is the God who administers it. There's very few places in the Bible where we really get a peek into the very heart of God. And this is one of those places. The author tells us that this grieved God to his heart. And when you think about grief, it makes sense that that God is grieved because the measure of grief that one feels is always commensurate with the depth of love that one has. The measure of grief one feels is always commensurate with the measure of love one has. And God is most grieved in judging the world because God is the great lover of the world. The New Testament tells us that God desires to draw all people to himself and he doesn't want any to perish. God takes no delight in destroying the world that he loves. No one is more brokenhearted than God at the judgment of evil in the world. And I think you can understand this. If you're a parent... Think about when your children were younger, perhaps, and your role as a parent largely involved disciplining your children well. How does a loving parent discipline his or her children? Well, you don't ignore your children's bad behavior and rebellion. That would not be good. But on the other hand, you also don't punish 
mercilessly and enjoy that. Rather, loving parents show discipline and punish their children and show them that there are consequences in this world for bad behavior while grieving it at the same time. Love and grief go together. And we see that in God's own hearts in the flood. We see that God judges the world because it's evil. We see that God is grieved in his judgment because of his great love for us. And then the third thing we see is the seriousness, the seriousness of the human predicament in the judgment of the flood. You know, it's as if we've said this from the beginning of this series, sin, and it's hard for religious people in a city like San Antonio to really get our minds around this. Sin is not just doing bad stuff. And sin is also not just, quote, missing the mark. Sin, rather, according to Genesis and all of the story of the Bible, is cosmic treason. We've put it this way repeatedly. Sin is a transfer of allegiance from God to self. It's a movement from the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness. And it follows, if that's what sin is really about, that human rebellion against God is supremely serious. The flood, very clearly here, teaches a truth that's hard but necessary for all of us, and that is that sin really does deserve God's just judgment. Sin brings us into exile from God. Sin brings death. And the New Testament writers use the flood story on multiple occasions in the writings of the New Testament. And in every instance, the flood is used by the New Testament authors as a warning as a warning against the coming judgment of God against sin. Just as one example, let me read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what Peter writes. For people deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And then here comes the flood. That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Sin is a serious thing, and each of us as sinners find ourselves in a serious predicament. I find in my own heart, and I think it's true for most of us, that we all want justice as long as it's not for us. Right? We all want justice as long as it's not for our rebellion. And isn't it so easy to say, yes, God, be just towards those bad people over there on the other side of the aisle. Or who are a different religion. Or who, like, you know, I just don't like for one reason or another. Be just with them, God, but leave me alone. The great Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes this. Listen to what he says. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were only necessary to destroy them and cut them off. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, including us. It's both true of us that we are made in God's image, Genesis 1, with inherent dignity, value, and worth, and that every inclination of our hearts is only evil all the time. Both of those things are true because the line dividing good and evil runs straight through our hearts. Listen, the Bible gives you the Bible gives you an unrivaled resource for understanding yourself. It gives you an unrivaled resource for growing in self-awareness. 
What the flood says is that you are not innocent. That the line dividing good and evil cuts through your hearts. And that you and I can and should be judged by God for our own rebellion, for our own cosmic treason. The flood, as a story, places us squarely in the middle of that reality. The flood is about God's judgment against evil. Secondly, the flood is about man's salvation. Man's salvation from evil. So this is a tough story in a lot of ways. It's an act of divine judgment. But at the same time, it's an act of God's divine salvation. God saves Noah. And then through Noah, God preserves the rest of mankind. And as we've gone through Genesis, you might have noticed if you read this story carefully that you'll see that the flood story repeatedly uses very similar language to what we read in Genesis 1. And that's because the flood is, it's like a decreation. It's a decreation. Notice you read about the creeping and crawling things and the birds and the insects. You read about all the same things we read about in Genesis 1 because God is destroying what he has made in judgment, and then he recreates it. He remakes the world again through Noah's family. Just as one example, look in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. We didn't read this, but here's what we read. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly what God said to Adam in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, all the birds of the heavens, everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. So in Noah we see, in Noah we see that God is not giving up on the world. He's not giving up on this world that he has made, but has become deeply wounded by sin. In Noah, we see that in the midst of God's judgment, he still plans to save and redeem really this entire universe. Just a couple of things to see here about Noah. First, this story shows us that God saves Noah by grace, by grace, through faith. Look in chapter six again. We've read about how terrible the earth was. God's sorry that he made man. He says out loud, I'm going to blot man out. I'm sorry that I've made them. And then this little phrase is thrown in in a very, very important place. Verse 8. But all is not lost. But Noah. But Noah found favor. Grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9. Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now that doesn't mean that Noah was perfect. We're going to see next week that Noah is far from perfect. When it says that Noah is righteous, what it means is that he has accepted God's promise to him by faith. You notice that verse eight, Noah found grace, comes before verse nine, Noah was righteous. If verse nine, Noah is righteous, comes before verse eight, Noah found favor, Christianity is destroyed. That is not an exaggeration. Because the way Christianity works is like this. God does not show favor to those that have already become righteous because there is none who is righteous, no, not even one. Rather, God shows favor free of charge according to his own sovereign and loving good pleasure. And he places it upon sinners and rebels like Noah and like me and like you. And through that transformative act makes us righteous. That's exactly what happens with Noah. 
And then we read in verse 16 of chapter 7 that Noah is delivered by God. Notice what it says there in that verse. Who is it that closes the door on Noah in the ark? The Lord. The Lord shut him in. What an artfully put verse that is. The Lord shut Noah in. Not to save Noah, not to judge Noah, but to save Noah in the middle of all this other judgment that's going on. So it's God at work here, saving those who trust him. It's God using the judgment of the world as a means for the salvation of the world. You can think of the ark as, the ark is like a big, huge coffin. In fact, the word for ark in Hebrew is very similar to the word for tomb or coffin. And God is placing Noah and his family in the coffin of the ark at the death of the world so that they can come through to the other side for the life of the world. So we see that God saves Noah by grace. And then the second thing we see about God's salvation is that he keeps his promise here. Remember, God has already promised in Genesis 3 to save the world from the curse of sin and the power of the evil one by one day sending a child, a child of Adam and Eve, who will crush the head of the serpent. And most commentators say that chapter 8, verse 1 is the turning point of the flood. Look at what it says. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now that word remember is covenant language. The word remember is promise language. And the idea behind that verb, remember, is not something like God saying, Oh my gosh! I'm destroying everything. I forgot about Noah. You know, it's like me when I go upstairs to get my shoes on. And uh, I go upstairs to get my shoes on, and I end up doing three other things while I'm upstairs. And I come downstairs, and I'm like halfway down the stairs with no shoes on still. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I went up the stairs to put on my shoes, and I completely forgot. I did these other things instead. That's not what God's doing here. God's not like waxing, smashing, crushing, destroying, pouring water everywhere. Oh, my goodness, Noah, wait. No, the word remember is God's movement toward the object of his memory. That's the way Brevard Childs puts it. For God to remember is for God to move toward the object of his memory. What we see here is that God is continuing to be faithful to the promise that he has made humanity. That one day he is going to destroy evil. One day he's going to destroy the devil. One day he's going to make everything whole again. Or as Tolkien famously puts it, one day everything sad is going to come untrue. And we see that happening in the flood. God remembers Noah. And then look at chapter 8, verse 21. I love this verse. This struck me for the first time this week. Verse 21, chapter 8. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma that Noah offers in worship, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. That's his promise. I will never curse the ground. We'll look at that more next week. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What? That doesn't fit. You would think it would say, I will never again curse the ground for I love man. But that's not what it says. In fact, it says the exact same thing that was said about man before the flood. What has changed from the time Noah got on the ark to the time Noah got off the ark? What has changed? It's not us. There's a hint. It's not like sin got on the ark with Noah and then Noah got off by himself. No, sin got on the ark and guess what? Sin got right off the ark with Noah. The intentions of man's heart is still evil. 
in verse 21 of chapter 8, after the flood is over. So what's changed? Well, here's what's changed. What's changed is the heart of God towards mankind. If if that makes you uncomfortable, (laughs) me putting it that way, then let me put it a little bit differently. What we see here is the Bible's disclosure of God's unfailing purpose unfolding further. The last word of the flood story is that God is still grieved over human sin, but in his mercy, he chooses to save the guilty. The last word of the flood story is not, listen, it's not judgment, period. That's never the last word with God, the real God. The last word of the flood story is free grace, forgiveness, and mercy. The last word of the flood story is that God keeps the promises he makes. How do we know that? How can we know that that's actually true for us? Sure, that was true for Noah. Sure, that's what the Bible says, but is that true for me now in the middle of my guilt? Well, you know that because this is not the only flood of God's judgment that we see in the story of the Bible. Really, this entire story, just like every story in the Old Testament, it's like a huge highway sign on I-35 pointing you to something else. The flood story is one huge sign pointing you forward to Jesus. How? Well, at the cross, God judges the world again, just like he does at the flood. You could even say that the cross is the greater flood. Really, God is pouring out the waters of judgment at the cross, just like he did at the flood, with one crucial difference. All of the judgment is being dumped on one person. All of the judgment is being dumped on Jesus. And so at the cross, just like we see at the flood, God saves the world via judging the world. That's what happened when Jesus Christ dies. God is judging in the death of Jesus, human rebellion and evil. He's flooding the world with justice, but he's flooding it on Jesus who takes God's judgment for us. And through Jesus, we escape God's judgment. So the cross is like the greater flood and Jesus is like the greater ark. God shut Noah and his family into the ark. And for any who will trust Jesus, God shuts us. He connects us. He collapses us into Jesus. So that Paul can say something so radical as he says in Colossians 3, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus is the greater ark, and the cross is the greater flood. And just like Noah and the ark saved the world through judgment, so Jesus saves the world through judgment. And the way that you can connect and collapse into Jesus is the exact same way that Noah connected and collapsed into God by trusting that God will keep his promises. So like the flood, the cross is the place where justice and mercy meet. Or as some hymn writers have more beautifully put it, it's the place where justice and mercy kiss. Paul says in Romans 3 that God at the cross becomes both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So what's happening in the flood? Let's wrap it up. The flood is asking you to see yourself in its light. It's asking you to place yourself in the grand story. 
And it's unsurpassed in its capacity to help us see who we really are and who God really is. The flood asks you to see yourself as a rebel, as someone who does have that line of good and evil going right through your heart, as someone who actually really does deserve God's flood of judgment, who deserves exile, who deserves death. But it also asks you, like Noah did, to trust God at his word, that he has sent Jesus, the final ark, to take you through the waves of God's justice into the bright, shining daylight of his forgiving mercy. The story asks you to trust that God has done it again once for all in the cross. Can you see that playing out in your life? Can you place yourself in the story and see who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Let me tell you a story, then we're done. Donald Gray Barnhouse was an early 20th century pastor that served at 10th Pres in Philadelphia for many years. But before he went to 10th Pres, he was a pastor in France. And uh, he and his family, while they were ministering in France, met uh, a young French woman who became a Christian through their ministry. And she spent a lot of time with the Barnhouse family in those early days. And one thing that she noticed was the Barnhouse's practice of what they called a promise box. A promise box. This was a small box containing about 200 tiny rolls of paper on which promises of the Bible had been written. And the Barnhouses used to take one of those rolls out and read it whenever they needed a special word of comfort. And this appealed to this young French friend. So she made her own promise box and she wrote out all these promises in French. And the time came some years later when World War II swept over Europe. And as you know, France was severely, particularly affected by World War II. And the people in that day struggled to live. You know, at times food ran short. And the time came when this woman had no food for her family except for a mass of potato peels from a restaurant. And her children were emaciated and they were crying for food. And this woman was simply desperate. She was desperate. And in this tragic moment, what does she do? She remembers the promise box. And she crawls over across the floor and reaches up to grab one of the promises out of the box. And in so doing, clumsily hits the box, knocking it over, every single promise spilling onto her head. And as she's doing this, she's crying and thinking to herself, Surely, God, there's something here for me. And as she's blinded by tears, all the promises come showering down onto her, into her lap, and then the box tumbles onto the floor. Not a single promise was left. And she knew in that moment that the Spirit had done something powerful. The Spirit had shown her that the promises of God really are beyond counting. They're without number. And that they were all for her. They were all for her. And that they all were true. As Paul tells us, every promise of God has its yes in Jesus. That's what the flood is about. The flood tells you that you are under the curse of evil. And the flood tells you that the curse has been removed by God himself, free of charge in Jesus. Can you place yourself in the story? Can you see Jesus for who he is and worship him and love him and follow him? May that be the case with us. Let's pray.